Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. Well, this is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. I'm your host, John Moorhead, and I hope you find Today's podcast of interest, whether you're listening in audio format or watching on our YouTube channel, uh, this, of course, is not the only podcast that we have. We have other topics that we have explored. You might want to check out our library, and we have additional resources as well that you can find on our website at multifaithmatters.org. And our goal is to help uh, evangelicals and other Christians not only fulfill the Great Commission, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to share our faith with others, but also to fulfill the Great Commandments. How do we love God and love neighbors, including our multi-faith neighbors and those neighbors who are even secular humanists? And that leads uh, me to my guest today, Tom Crapmaker. And I'm going to read his bio from uh, one of his books that I picked up and we'll include his uh, biographical information and uh, titles to his books in the program notes so folks can seek those out. But uh, Tom is an award-winning author, a USA Today contributing columnist specializing in religion and public life and the Communications Director at Yale Divinity School. His books and articles have been honored by the American Academy of Religion, Religion Newswriter Association, Forward Reviews, and others. Crapmaker has spoken at numerous conferences in colleges around the country and has appeared in various media outlets, including PBS, Fox News, National Public Radio, ESPN, and the New York Times. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you. Thanks for inviting me on. It's great to John? It's great to have you here. Now, uh, we were talking before the program. Uh, you, you said that Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower has won an award. What award was that? Yeah, this meant a lot to me. I was very happy about it. But at the um, Religion News Association conference, it got um, the number two prize for Best Religion Book of 2016. Awesome. Well, I added that one to my library, and I also picked up a copy of The Evangelicals You Don't Know. And, you uh, set a great example. Everybody should follow <laughs> your example. Well, I appreciate that. Our, our mutual friend and colleague, uh, Paul Lewis Metzger, you uh, uh, referenced a couple of times in the book. And I'm, I'm just pleased to have someone, especially a secular humanist, who has other evangelicals on their, on their radar. I think in the post-Trump era especially, uh, perhaps rightly, we're taking it on the chin and uh, we need to rebuild our credibility. And some of us are trying to do it differently. So I appreciate your acknowledgement of, of that in the book. Well, I appreciate what you're saying. I've engaged with evangelicals a lot over the years, but I'll be candid. It's been harder Yeah. Um, in the past several years, harder to justify to other secular people and other liberals why I would do that. But we might get into that in more depth. I think we both know what, uh, <laughs> what the main issue has been there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I always like to begin with my guests in hearing your story. I mean, we evangelicals were so much about doctrine and worldview and beliefs, almost in the abstract. And we removed that from the subjective and the, the lived reality of people's pathways. Um, you're a secular humanist. Tell, tell me your story. Have you always been that? Did you gravitate towards that? What's your story about? Well, John, I grew up in a marginally um, religious home. My mother would sort of drag us to church or force us to go. Um, my sisters and I weren't really into it, but um, for a while in college, I really wanted to become a Christian, and I um, had a lot of meetings with Campus Crusade for Christ people, went on a retreat one time, and um, I felt like I was really getting to that point of like a major commitment to Christian faith, but then nothing really happened. It didn't sink in with me. It faded. Some other factors were sort of driving me away from it. For a while in my adult life, I participated in a Unitarian church, so much so that I was even a co-advisor to the youth group and very involved in that. But then uh, in, over the last 10, 15 years, I've really settled into um, a secular life stance, but one that's friendly toward religion and one in which I'm able to still see what's good about religion and try to incorporate the best parts of it into my own life and even try to speak up for religion even evangelicals. 
<laughs> so part of my story is that I've always engaged with the other, right? air quotes for those who are hearing only the audio. But I've embedded with um, the Muslim community for a while. I've embedded with evangelicals. Um, now I work at a Christian divinity school. Not only do I work there, but it's my job to promote the school. I'm communications director. And so I'm constantly trying to advance the school, sharing what's great about the school and the kind of Christianity that it represents. And I've also been involved in more in organized secular life in recent years. I was on the board of the Yale Humanist Community until its unfortunate demise a couple of years ago. And um, I'm still involved in a secular humanist group now, something called the Good Life Gathering. And of course, for me, perhaps my main engagement with religion and values has been writing about it, which is how I promote ideas that I think are important. And it's also how I work out my own beliefs mm -hmm. and my own values in these regards. Now, you mentioned your uh, work in, in interfaith as a secular person. I, I sent you some questions previously, but this just came to mind. Uh, there, as far as I know, there aren't many secular humanists involved in interfaith. Is, is that a correct understanding? And are you starting to see more? What's that situation like? A few, a few. I've been involved with the wing of humanism that's most friendly toward religion. The person who um, led the Yale Humanist Group, which I was part of, is a pretty big name in um, secular circles and one who has sort of a pro-religion atheist identity. I'm referring to Chris Stedman. Okay. The author of Faithiest, Faithiest probably yeah. a name that you know. Yeah, he, he was and the I executive were, he, director. He and I were at uh, Utah Union. Valley University at a conference together, yeah, years ago. And so you know that he has a pro-religion stance, not everything mm -hmm. that religion says or does, but he's more than willing to engage with religious people, go into partnerships. And secular and humanist students at Yale went into partnership with students in the Catholic ministry for a while, doing some good in the community. I think it was serving the homeless. And so I'm very well aware of this wing of humanism. It's not the only strain of humanism, but it's a strong one. And I think it's a growing one. Well, let me talk to you about terminology issues. There are a lot of terms sure. that are used out there. You refer your, to yourself as a secular humanist. We're familiar with the term atheist. Uh, I've got some atheist uh, friends and colleagues that we have dialogue with who prefer the term non-theist. Uh, some just go by the term uh, humanist and skeptic. Um, help help evangelicals unpack the terminology. Are, do people kind of grab onto whatever label they think best fits uh, where they're coming they, they from? Do. Why have you chosen secular humanism? They do, and I, um, I can best answer your question by talking about myself. Um, why don't I call myself an atheist? Well, to me, that label connotes a kind of certainty, hmm. a lack of humility, whereas I believe questions about the existence and nature of God are pretty unknowable ultimately. I'm more agnostic and in a humble way where those things are concerned. Um, Non-theist you mentioned, that's another term that says what you aren't right. rather than what you are. And that's gonna be a big part of my answer. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes people describe themselves as um, skeptics. Again, that's to a large degree something related to what you aren't, what you don't right. believe. Um, I tend to use the word secular, which again is about being non-religious, i.e. what you aren't. But to me, it's not, it doesn't have the same negative connotations and the same connotations of, com of being um, combative and overly certain and lacking humility. So I tend to go with that, but I usually couple it with what I am which these days I'm proud to say and happy to say is humanist. That's when you start getting into what are you? What do you believe? You know, at the Yale humanist community, we used to have a saying whereby we said, being non-religious is about much more than what you don't believe. And of course that begs the question, what do you believe and what do you value? And that's what our group was all about. And the group that I'm involved in now is the same way. Uh, positive articulation of secular life. I appreciate that emphasis on humility. Uh, I wish uh, more evangelicals were known for that. Um, we tend to emphasize uh, alleged certainty, certitude, right? I remember years ago, the title of a 
an apologetics book by uh, Josh McDowell, Evidence and Demands a Verdict, right? You've got to have certainty. But I'm, you... uh, I'm well aware of that book. And I once <laughs> heard Josh McDowell speak during my campus crusade phase as an undergraduate. Yeah, but the older I get and the more I walk in uh, my Christian shoes, the more I value humility. Um, maybe I can push the envelope and say, yeah, I think it's okay to consider oneself a Christian agnostic in the sense that one is leaving room for the possibility that one could be wrong, certainly in at least certain areas. I mean, I've changed uh, my understanding in some areas of my Christian faith over the years. So I, I appreciate and value humility in myself and in conversation partners. Um, so that really rings true for me. Uh, here's a little anecdote about myself. When it comes to events, sometimes um, I'm asked to um, have a debate with somebody or argue with somebody. And I don't want to do that. And so I'll only do it if they can reframe it as a conversation. Right. Um, for one thing, I mean, that's not really my temperament. I'm not like a super combative, argumentative kind of guy. But I also want, and I don't want it to be like a competition, like somebody wins and somebody loses. And to me, that's implied when you talk about a debate. But at the same time, I want to be able to have an open mind. I mean, if I'm wrong about something, the sooner I find that out and the sooner I change my game, the better. And if you go into a conversation, that possibility exists. And that is much more appealing to me than going into a debate where you can never concede an inch. Right, right. I, I agree. Years ago, uh, when I lived in California, now in Utah, um, I was a young, zealous Christian apologist, and I debated, I think it was three, three or four times, Dan Barker of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. I think we did one on the existence of God and two or three on the resurrection of Christ. And after that, I had a really bad taste in my mouth. Really? Uh, because uh, in, in debates, my, my impression of debates, and they certainly can have their place, um, in debates, you're really preaching to the choir. You're really trying to persuade primarily your audience, your team, that your position is right. And hopefully you might be able to persuade a few of the others, but you're really talking past your debate partner. They're kind of the foil for making your case. And I, I, I would never do another debate again. Like you, I would really? prefer to reframe it. Let's, we disagree. We both think we're right in our respective views. That's fine. But let's have a, a deep conversation about that rather than trying to debate each other. That, so I think we're on the same page there. Yeah, it sure seems that way. Thanks for sharing that with me. Um, let's see here. Uh, let's talk about why it's important for evangelicals and other Christians to have conversations with secular humanists. Um, a group called the nuns, not nuns wearing habits as in Roman Catholics, but N-O-N-E-S, the nuns, those who in surveys uh, about their religious affiliation, they choose none. They choose to have no religious affiliation. It's really a preference for non-institutional expressions and searches for spirituality and, and so on. Um, that is a huge and growing segment of the American population. Um, and I think it's a group that, that evangelicals in particular are gonna have to take seriously and try and understand. Um, and a part of that, of course, are secular humanists, atheists, and, and others. Um, what would your case be for evangelicals as to why they need to try and understand their neighbors who are secular humanists and a part of the nuns. Sure. When I speak about the nuns, and by the way, I am officially a nun, an N-O-N-E, because usually with those religion surveys, secular Jesus follower is not one of the categories. <laughs> and I say that even after having told you that I do consider myself a something, right. i.e. humanist and somebody who follows the values and example of Jesus. But when it comes to the religious categories, yes, I'm a nun, an N-O-N-E. But as I often say, this rise of the nuns or this growth of the religiously unaffiliated is something I neither lament nor cheer. And I invite religious people, including evangelicals, to take the same stance, neither lament nor fear. Just accept it, it is what it is. And it creates challenges, but opportunities as well. I think you use the word understand, and that's the key word. I think it behooves all of us to understand these so-called others who we might feel threatened by. Now, when it comes to conservative, traditionalist, evangelicals, and their view of the nuns, I think it's often negative. And frankly, it's no wonder 
because a lot of the information they're receiving about secular liberals and so forth is really negative. It's like the worst examples of what secular people are saying and doing, examples that are likely to cause the maximum amount of fear and alarm. And the people who are promoting those stories, who are often political actors, are doing it for a reason, you know? It pays to get people angry and afraid. They're more likely to give to a political campaign. They're more likely to vote. They're more likely to start sharing things on social media. And so it's no wonder that these negative ideas prevail, but it's a shame that they do because there's a lot more to secular people than what walled off religious people are hearing and seeing. It's true also for secular people. What they see, see and hear about evangelical conservatives is only the worst examples and the most extreme rhetoric. They don't see the reasonable stuff. They don't even see the sometimes inspiring stuff that evangelicals are doing. That was the point of my 2013 book, The Evangelicals You Don't Know, where I say in the opening of the book, hey, secular liberals, you got a problem with evangelicals? All right, well, which ones? The point <laughs> being that they don't all live up to this negative stereotype. But of course, that's a, that's a story that's even more, a story that's even more difficult to tell in 2021 than it was in 2013 because of Trump. Right. So what do they need to know about the nuns? Well, it occurs to me that in public discourse and in understanding culture, it's sometimes instructive to pay attention to what we are not seeing and hearing. So for the longest time in my adult life, there's been this talking point in conservative culture that liberals and seculars don't really have any morals or mm -hmm. don't have any values. Okay, that's changed, thank goodness. You don't really hear that as much anymore, I don't. What you hear instead is that when the Islam liberal people come forward with their ideas that they're dogmatic or they're too shrill or too sanctimonious and too quick to condemn and cancel others who aren't politically or correct or who don't have the right belief. So that's an interesting flip-flop, right? Going from like no morals, no values to, whoa, having, having some that are too strong and too pious or maybe the wrong beliefs, obviously. <laughs> so let's take note of that. What we don't hear though from secular people, the growing numbers of nuns, is that they, do, they don't say, hey, I don't care about being good. You don't hear them say, goodness is overrated. Who cares about that? Let's all be bad. <laughs> we don't hear anything like that. The point being that we secular people care about being good and we're trying to be good and trying to create a more just and a more fair world. The implementation might be screwed up some of the time. We might articulate it poorly, maybe a lot of the time. And the uh, institutions and practices may often be half-hearted, but we do care. It's pretty obvious by now that non-religious people do have beliefs and morals and values. It's a question of what they are and how well they're carried out. So I would invite evangelicals and other religious people to consider that. And so it's good that we all care about being good. We have different conceptions of what it means to be good, but I think that there's something we can work with when we can all agree that we're trying to do what's good for people, for humanity, for the planet that sustains us. We have something we can work with there. I think so. I'm, I'm, it's good that you're not hearing uh, that complaint or that concern about atheists and secular humanists being immoral. Um, I wonder if maybe it's just not being expressed and other perceptions are higher because I, I still think there's a relatively recent Pew survey out there uh, where uh, if you look at the Pew survey on their feelings thermometer, attitudes, the effective dimension towards people in other religious traditions, and unfortunately, towards the bottom of the, the colder end of the feelings, you see Muslims and even below Muslims, you see, still see atheists. And one of the concerns is uh, because they don't believe in God, therefore they can't have any morality. Um, so, so maybe it's still there, 
but it's just not being expressed. It's not as great as concern as other things. So I don't know, maybe that means we're making progress. I, I'm not sure. That's my sense. And um, sure, it's there, but you don't see as many influential pundits right. and talking heads saying that secular liberal people don't care about anything. They just kill people for fun because they have no values or no moral guardrails around their life. And if somebody says that, they don't say it with much credibility and fewer people are going to buy it because there's so much evidence to the contrary. Lived experience with each day is disproving or at least calling into question what, to me anyway, was kind of accepted a decade ago or maybe mm -hmm. even five years ago. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your discussion of why we should take the nuns seriously. I will note a little uh, promo here that in the near future, we'll be having Elizabeth Drescher on to talk about the nuns. She's done some great research in that area. And, and contrary, my understanding is, contrary to popular misconceptions, many times even in the media, the nuns uh, are not solely just atheists and, and uh, seculars. These are people who prefer a non-institutional quest and search and creation of their own spirituality, and they're turned off by religious institutions and more traditional religions and that kind of thing, which includes atheists and secular humanists and so on, but is not exclusively that. Is that your understanding of as a nun? <laughs> yeah, I think um, atheists are just one subset of this broad group called the nuns. And it's unfortunate that we don't have a better term. Right. You know, repeating myself from earlier, nun just says what you aren't. Right. So it's a very broad and vague descriptor. But it includes people who are spiritual, people who are still somewhat religious, but don't really participate in any institutions or houses of worship. Um, it includes people who have hybrid identities mm -hmm, right. where they mix and match a little bit following their own lights. I would say some of it, some of this kind of um, secular spirituality, which is something I identify with, is really rigorous and really good. But other times it seems like if I were to describe it to you, you would think it was kind of lame. Like sometimes people talk about self-care practices being a spiritual practice. And I'm kind of cynical about that. That doesn't sound super deep to me. But there are forms of secular spirituality that are gaining strength, that are serious, that are really devoted to serving others and getting outside of ourselves, which I think is mm -hmm. really important. And so there's a whole range. And when I say range, I also mean the seriousness of the commitment that people bring to it. And a lot of it's experimental, it's iterative, it's being developed as we go. It's a new thing. And yeah. I will say that institution building under that umbrella is tough. <laughs> Most definitely. <laughs> I, I really like your uh, your repeated emphasis on the importance of terminology. Uh, one of my, I'll, I'll share one of my pet peeves in the evangelical world, the terms churched and unchurched. Um, we tend to refer to people as to what we think they should be or where they sh we think they should be rather than allowing them to self-identify. And I just, I, it's reductionistic and, and problematic. And so I think uh, in, in culture, we have terminology problems, we should allow people to self-identify uh, through that process. And I think dialogue is a part of that process to help do that. Um, before we talk about what secular humanist spirituality might look like, which may seem strange to some uh, viewers and some listeners, I want to try and unpack a little bit more about uh, humanism. Um, I think when evangelicals think of secular humanists, they think of a Richard Dawkins uh, and that kind of a thing, the, the so-called new atheists with their rough, aggressive, anti-religious tone. Um, secular humanism is far broader than the new atheists. Does it not help us to understand some of the diversity of your community? Secular humanism is these days generally a non-religious thing, a secular thing. It um, values human life. It values rational and science-based approaches to solving human problems. Sometimes there's a critique of humanists saying that they believe in, or they even worship humanity. And I say, no, I certainly don't feel that way. And most humanists I know don't feel that way. We would say that we believe in the potential for human goodness or the capacity for human goodness. But um, personally, I wouldn't say that human beings are good and only good, period. I think that's way too reductive and too optimistic. 
But the hopeful thing I have is that we have the capacity to be and do good and we can get better. And so humanism tries to institutionalize around that, promote the best ideas, build community and build good practices. Uh, it's may, again, I, I mentioned earlier that it may seem strange for some listeners to, to think of secular humanists as practicing a spirituality. And I don't know that you can help me understand this. I don't know that all would seek out that kind of thing. But what's interesting, I follow uh, various uh, research uh, websites and so on that are starting to look more at uh, secular and atheistic kinds of expressions. And, and there, there is this seemingly to me, kind of this renewed interest in forming community and maybe having some kinds of spiritual practices. Um, you've got an interesting book here, Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower. How in the world can a secular person, why would a secular person want to be a Jesus follower? What's the appeal in that context? One of my critiques of um, the secular mindset is that there's too much of a commitment to figuring it out for ourselves. It meaning like the meaning of life not to be too grandiose. But there's this thought that we all have to be captains of our own life. There's a temptation to think we have to like figure it all out from scratch. And I say, no, there are great sources of wisdom and input and inspiration going back through the ages. And we are wise to avail ourselves of that. For me personally, Jesus, you know, his example and his teachings that's the best source that I know of for insight on what it means to live a good and meaningful life. Key part being a life that's directed toward others and larger concerns and not toward me and my own gratification and advancement. And so when I look at the pantheon of philosophers and wisdom purveyors and sages and spiritual figures, Jesus is the one who I think speaks to me the most. And I'm amazed at how relevant and applicable his example and teachings are to the things that beset us today as a society and as individuals. It's amazing. And so I choose to try to incorporate as much of the Jesus teaching and example as I can into my own life. And a really key thing there, and maybe this is the most important thing I get from Jesus is that the ultimate character test is how we treat those we could mistreat most easily and get away with it. You know, those on society's lowest rungs, those who have the least amount of status and power. And that really speaks to me. That goes back to the song I used to hear in church when I was a kid, you know, whatsoever you do to the least of my children, that's what you do unto me. And that has always been like a really powerful component of Jesus and frankly of Christianity. And I don't have to close myself off to that, even though I have a hard time like believing in the realness and the reality of God. And so I have this hybrid religious identity, even though I really don't consider myself a church guy or a religious guy or a God believer in the conventional sense, I wanna be able to be inspired by Jesus and follow Jesus. And so I'm claiming that and I'm doing it. But um, the word secular is really important here. And people always ask about that. Like, what do you mean secular Jesus follower? Like you can't even be that. Jesus <laughs> was religious. And there's all sorts of religious beliefs built around Jesus and stuff that Jesus said. And I concede that, yes. And so I can like throw everything out because I'm not religious myself or I can pick and choose, which frankly I do. When it comes to the religious component of Jesus, you can either just not pay attention to that. I prefer to translate it and think about ways that it can be understood and incorporated in um, secular ways. And I even get into that in the Secular Jesus Follower book. I take some of the major concepts of Christianity, like, oh, resurrection, and think about what it might mean to a secular person, what it might mean as a metaphor. But the key thing there is secular. I'm not saying Jesus is secular, but mm -hmm. I'm saying that I'm engaging with Jesus in a secular way. Mm -hmm. Interesting. But uh, secular spirituality is my project. You know, since the book, I've written a series of manifestos for the Humanist Magazine of mm -hmm. the American Humanist Association, looking at things like what I call the new secular moment, whereby we're long past 
the moment of the new atheists in the mid and late aughts and how the four horsemen of the new atheism, you know, their moment is gone by and large. And I wrote um, a manifesto for them looking at a new form of secular transcendence or horizontal transcendence, as I like to call it. And I call on secular people to better articulate and better practice what we're about as secular people who are seeking meaning and goodness in our lives. And then the third in that trilogy of manifestos, <laughs> such a grandiose title, it was Life and Why It Must Continue. <laughs> but that was probably of all the articles I've ever written, that's the one that meant the most to me. And I really tried to tackle from a secular perspective why life matters so much and why it is such an urgent project and summons, especially in a time when the continued flourishing of life is under such threat. When I say that, I mainly refer to climate chaos, but it also applies to things that are happening around the world like authoritarianism, um, assaults on the truth, assaults on democratic values. And so that, as I say, that's been my project, trying to really articulate and encourage a kind of secular meaning-making and spirituality. I think all the tools are there, the beliefs and the values are there, it's just a matter of like getting the most compelling articulation together and then implementing it. Have you been able to get any feedback and kind of get a uh, feeling as to the various ways in which that book has been received? Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower? Unpleasant surprise. More secular people than I realized will just like close their ears once they hear the word Jesus. <laughs> ah, interesting even if I made it super clear that I'm talking about Jesus in a secular way, but they've um, heard Jesus invoked in so many ways mm -hmm. that they find off-putting that the phrase has become somewhat toxic, which I think is a total shame. I'm not gonna like totally blame these people or be angry about it, but that was an eye-opener for me. Not everybody, there were lots of secular people who said that they really appreciated what I was doing they got that what I was really talking about was a set of values. And even if you don't really get into Jesus, you could see the importance and the wisdom and the truth and those values that Jesus really framed. So that was good. And some even said to me like, yeah, I've always been sort of that way too, but thank you for like putting um, a name to it and giving it a label. But um, I've got a good response to the talks I've been giving about secular spirituality and horizontal transcendence, the articles have gotten a good response. And I was invited by several, quite a few secular organizations to give my um, horizontal transcendence spiel or my secular transcendence spiel. And people really um, took to it, even those who are skeptical about the whole Jesus thing. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear about the varied responses. Uh, the, the negative ones are understandable to me. I think evangelicals need to try and step back and be a little more sympathetic. Uh, many of the atheists I talk to, many of the pagans, I've even uh, lately had some fascinating dialogues with uh, Satanists who are atheists, and they, many of them have had very negative experiences with the church and with Christianity, and, and therefore, when you start going there, um, it, it, it triggers a lot of negative memories and reactions and, and negative emotions, and it's a very difficult area. And I just think we need to, again, rehumanize uh, the process of our conversations and our, our, you know, our dialogues, because, again, we, we evangelicals so put it in the abstract, well, why can't we just talk about this idea or, or Jesus? We forget that this this is something that's processed through somebody's lived experience with maybe very negative in the past. So I love that you um, use the word rehumanize because I use that a lot in talking about Jesus in my secular way. At one point in the book, I call him the great humanizer. Hmm. And another time I think I call him uh, the humanizer extraordinaire. And I talk about the way he continually rehumanizes people and situations that have been dehumanized. So a minute ago, I mentioned that I um, wrote this manifesto about the new secular moment. Mm -hmm. And I really want Christians in general and evangelicals in particular to pay attention to that. Um, the day of Hitchens and Dawkins and the flame throwing, sure, there's some of that still, 
but that's largely over. The humanists I'm around, the people who have like flowed into that space that perhaps Dawkins and Hitchens cleared out, they're not like such anti-religion fighters. They'd rather like team up with certain religious people where we have overlapping values and can do some good together. They don't want to keep like fighting religion. Uh, for evangelicals, really the bigger problem with them, it's not like the fact that they hate religion, it's that they might be indifferent toward religion and toward Christianity and toward Jesus. But it's a very different ballgame than what existed 10, 15 years ago. In what ways uh, are secular humanists uh, pursuing things like transcendence and meaning and this type of thing? It's not a surprise to me to see this development. Um, depending upon how one defines religion, I think human beings are, we have evolved to be religious creatures. Uh, we can't just go through life eating and drinking and reproducing. We seek meaning, we seek community, we seek connection with something beyond ourselves. Whether that, if, even if one rejects a god or gods or what have you, we still have that desire. And so it doesn't surprise me to see the secular humanist community seeking to find those kinds of things. How is that search, that human need working itself out in secular humanism? There's a great phrase that the American Humanist Association uses. It's actually their motto, and it's on their publications and website. And it says, it's, at first it was good without a god, and now it's good at first it was good without God, and now it's good without a God. And so a really simple answer is that more and more secular people are trying to do and be good. So what are some forms that that takes? Well, there's more secular community. As I alluded to earlier, it's a struggle, especially in a day when there's sort of this hostility or suspicion of institutions. But we have things like Sunday assembly and Oasis, which are non-religious gatherings that are sort of kind of like church in some ways, but it's about people getting together and seeking awe and uplift. It's not really worship, but it is an inspiring experience, or that's the intention. Same thing with the um, Yale humanist community, the late Yale humanist community, speaking of the struggles with institution building, and that's when I went to. That was more of an intellectual cast, but still it was community and people coming together to support one another and to help each other experience meaning and goodness and a larger perspective and identify our best intentions and commitments and try to live them out more fully, which I think is really good. Uh, same thing with the group that I'm part of now, which is kind of small and informal. It's called the Good Life Gathering. And that name really says a lot. It's about a good life. But it's not a good life that's defined in terms of like what I can get for myself. These conversations always go toward a life that's directed towards something larger than ourselves and our immediate concerns. And that to me really is the simplest definition of spirituality, something larger than ourselves, something good that's larger than ourselves. So that's taking, um, it's taking various forms. I talked about the groups. Some people are doing it very informally. They may be, uh, have a small group of friends and they're sharing great books and discussing them or really inspiring TED Talks or really cool spiritual practices that they've heard about and that they might try to incorporate themselves and then share them with others and talk about how it's going. So that'll give you some examples. Institution building is tough though. I mean, churches have been around for centuries and even churches are having some trouble when it comes to maintaining and building institutions. Oh, yeah. So you can imagine how tough it is for brand new organizations that have only been around for like five years or less. Uh, there's a real lack of funding, for example. And here's one area where I would fault um, the secular community that I belong to. Sometimes there's a lack of follow through. People think, oh, that sounds like a great idea. Yeah, I'll come to the meeting or join the group. But then they don't really sustain it. Sometimes there's a lack of volunteers. There's kind of a flake factor that I see. I mean, that can be true of churches too, but it's particularly frustrating for me in the secular community. Self-critique. Yeah, Self-critique's a good thing. We try to practice that regularly here at Multi-Faith Matters, so I appreciate that. Um, in the time that we have left, let's talk uh, a bit about the conflict that goes on in the, the public square. 
where evangelicals have a big part and where secular humanists have jumped into the fray and so on. There's this idea of the naked public square versus the clothed public square. Uh, on the one hand, you have some who want the naked public square. That is, let's just take uh, all religion out of it and it'll just be purely secular. And that way we won't, it'll, it'll be fair. And then we have those like me who would argue, no, that really, I think, privileges secularism. There's no such thing as a neutral naked public square. I would rather have uh, not the current public square where we have, unfortunately, uh, many times Christianity and evangelicals pushing privilege and trying to exclude others to have an equal place. Um, I want a pluralistic public square where everybody has a voice. And it may make uh, many people, particularly Christians, uncomfortable, and that's okay because that's the kind of situation we live in, and we just have to get, to get used to that. What would your perspective be on that particular issue? Well, you've already answered it for me. I'm with you. There can be um, this mistake made in the secular community. You know, speaking of N-words, they may think that a neutral public square is the naked public square, i.e. shorn of religion. And I get it. I mean, some people may think that as soon as you introduce religion into the equation, then you're going to have problems and some crazy stuff's going to get said. Certain groups of people we care about are going to get excluded or offended. So there's this temptation. But as you said and said so well, a naked public square is not a fair and neutral public square. I don't want a naked square, public square myself. I think we want a clothed public square, clothed with many different kinds of fabrics and colors and styles. And it may seem uncomfortable at first, but ultimately it's enriching. And we may end up hearing some things that we find off-putting and even um, threatening. But I think that if it's open to a broad spectrum of religious and non-religious perspectives, it's gonna be really good. And we might even learn some things. And we may have our negative ideas about the other dispelled. That would be really good. Um, my critique of what's happening now in politics and culture is that each side, so to speak, only gets the worst examples of what's going on on the other side. And I see this from both perspectives. I receive in my um, email and social media, a lot of progressive news feeds and newsreels and it's one story after another about some crazy thing that some conservative politician or some crazy evangelical did or said. And yeah, it makes you mad and alarmed and that's the whole point. But then I also get things like the Washington Times which is the conservative alternative in Washington DC and I get like the Christian Broadcasting Network and they're always showcasing like the most obnoxious, scary things that a liberal or a secular person mm -hmm said or did. And so it's understandable that people are so afraid of the other. But I think we need to challenge ourselves and start hearing about like the more reasonable thing that the other side is doing, the more understandable thing that they're doing, maybe even something really good that they're doing that could even inspire us and teach us. I know that's very idealistic, but I've seen it work. It's not that crazy. And I think it would be really helpful. Unfortunately, so many things militate against that, including the media landscape and the social media landscape. So we got to change some things to break out of that rut and that dynamic. Well, let me lean into some of what you've said there. Let me get your unvarnished take on evangelicals in this present post-Trump moment. Um, my community has really taken it on the chin. I think uh, much of it is deserved. However, my concern is that we're, we are going to shift from a desire for post-Trump accountability to post-Trump revenge and get even with them kinds of things. And so I, I've seen a lot of posts about evangelicals not only need to repent, but uh, we, you know, they just got to come clean. Maybe we need to, to, you know, our churches are places of radicalization. Now we're being equated in some circles with terrorist uh, organizations. Um, what is the perception? I think it's good to listen to our critics. Uh, we don't do that very well. Uh, we would like to see ourselves as we, we perceive ourselves to be rather than as the other sees us. How are secular humanists seeing evangelicals in this moment? And what, what would your perception be if that's the same or different? Well, it saddens me to say it. And I don't hold the view 
I mean, I'm the guy who wrote that 2013 book, The Evangelicals You Don't Know, where I basically was saying to progressives, you got to challenge your own stereotypes about who these people are. There are lots of evangelicals who don't fit your negative idea and who are doing really good things. As I alluded to earlier, though, that story is harder for me to tell right now because the main thing that secular people and liberal people see when it comes to white evangelicals, emphasis on white, is that they love Trump first and foremost. And that that has superseded all of the other things that they used to say they were about, like morality and character. And I think that is such a shame. I think it makes it harder for evangelicals to spread the gospel. I think it, I think it makes it harder for people outside of the evangelical world to be interested in Jesus. I think, I think it makes it harder for us to, to find some kind of workable understanding in this country to address the very real problems that we have. But it saddens me, and that is the view that white evangelicals are so devoted to Trump that everything else has fallen by the wayside. And so my plea would be to realize that there's so much more than politics when it comes to living out and practicing one's faith in today's world. And I would never tell people that you have to abdicate your political life and your political responsibility. That wouldn't be fair. That would sound like I'm asking for unilateral disarmament. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that there's so much more than politics when it comes to expressing one's faith, influencing culture, and so forth. And frankly, I would say the same thing to a lot of secular people. You know, you asked me before about how secular people are finding meaning and spirituality. Well, one way, and I don't think it's the best way, is like this almost religious devotion to progressive politics. It's kind of the analog to what I was saying a minute ago about evangelicals and Trump. And if you go all in on politics, whether you're coming from a secular liberal perspective or an evangelical perspective, it can really toxify your life. It's no way to live because every day you're being subjected to really bad behavior and horrible ideas about people on the other side who you start to think of as your enemy and it can be so corrosive. So yeah, that's my plea, more than politics. And I would say that to my fellow secular people too, as important as politics are. Well, for uh, any secular humanists we might have who uh, find this podcast, uh, I appreciate that. I would uh, point them towards uh, one of your books, The Evangelicals You Don't Know. I would also note there was an interesting uh, article I stumbled upon uh, that uh, referred to what they called reflexive evangelicals, uh, evangelicals who are, are being self-critical, self-aware, doing things that uh, evangelicals aren't usually associated with, and they did some case studies, and in fact, our, our mutual friend and colleague, Paul Lewis Metzger, featured prominently in that paper, and so there are some of us out there trying to do it differently, so uh, just as there's diversity in secular humanism and, and that type of thing, there's diversity within evangelicalism as well, so seek out, I think, the best in uh, all communities and trying to connect with those and dialogue with those folks. That would be my counsel and my hope. Right there with you. <laughs> um, let me uh, ask one other question. For those secular humanists who are willing to have the conversation, engage in the dialogue, develop relationships, and, and work together, how? what suggestions would you have for doing that? How can we connect with people of goodwill in the secular humanist community to make our communities better places despite our differences? I'd start by um, reading some um, media outlets or consuming videos or podcasts that will expose you to other kinds of religious people who don't fit your stereotype of um, you know, Trump-loving conservatives. Find out what they're saying and doing and then challenge yourself to have a more complex view of what's going on. Another good thing to do is interfaith partnerships. And you can do this as a humanist or secular group too. It's being done where you identify a need in your community. Maybe it's people who lack housing or food security or something like that, or the foster system. And you can team up just to do something really practical that's good for your community. In so doing, 
you're gonna find out about these other fellow citizens of yours. And you could even develop some good feeling and rapport with them. Who knows, maybe even friendships. And that would be really good. So it's important to start small. Um, it's important not to talk only about politics. When I engage with, um, when I engage with um, conservatives and evangelical conservatives, I just like to chat at first and just ask some simple questions and listen. Maybe they wanna talk about their kids. Maybe we talk about sports. Maybe we talk about the part of the country we live in, things like that. We can't always just focus on politics and the things that divide us and make us angry. Tom, I appreciate those great words and I hope that evangelicals and secular humanists will take that to heart and seek each other out as conversation partners and, and partners in their communities and neighborhoods. Is there anything else you'd like to, to add or, or ask as we draw our, our conversation to a close? I just wanna thank you for the work you do. It's so important. Good luck, keep going. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I should have had you on sooner. I don't know why I didn't. I'm, I'm glad we Oh man, I'm to... so mad about that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, who knows? No, I'm not mad anymore. That's right, that's right. Well, who knows? Maybe uh, maybe opportunity will surface and we'll come back and be able to collaborate on a, a project in the future. I, know I would you... welcome the opportunity. I know you and Paul have uh, worked on some things together and hopefully some future projects will come in the works. Um, my guest has been Tom Prattenmaker, and you can find uh, his bio and uh, links to his books and the program notes, and uh, we wish him well. I want to thank everyone for listening and for watching, and again, please check our website for additional resources at multifaithmatters.org, and of course, we are a nonprofit organization, which mean, it means we need your financial support to keep these kinds of resources possible, so uh, give us a positive rating and consider a donation via our website. Uh, thank you so much, and uh, please tune in again for the next edition of the Multi-Faith Matters podcast.